The following is from East Delta Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at www.eastdeltabc.com. When I was 23, I got married to a widow who was pretty as could be. This widow had a grown-up daughter who had hair of red, and my father fell in love with her, and soon the two were wed. This made my dad my son-in-law and changed my very life. My daughter was my mother, for she's my father's wife. To complicate the matter's worth, although it brought me joy, I soon became the father of a bouncing baby boy. My little baby became a brother-in-law to dad, so because my uncle, this made me very sad, so he became my uncle, which made me very sad, for if he was my uncle, then that also made him a brother to the widow's grown-up daughter, who, of course, was my stepmother. My father's wife had a son who kept them on the run, and and he became my grandson, for he was my daughter's son. My wife is now my mother's mother, and it makes me kind of blue, because although she is my wife, she's my grandmother, too. If my wife is my grandmother then I'm her grandchild, and every time I think of it, it simply drives me wild, for now I have become the strangest case you ever saw. As the husband of my grandmother, I'm my own grandpa. (laughs) Um, I read that about 20 times, and it works out. You know, we're kind of fascinated with genealogy these days. Uh, Sometimes we may be a little apprehensive about discovering uh, the history of our family, and uh, I know that it's likely if uh, we went and discovered all the history of our family, we might not be very proud of all the things that we find. We uh, will more than likely find a few skeletons in the closet, and... uh, You know, if you're drawing up a family tree, uh, you certainly want your tree to branch at some point. Uh, But, uh, you know, there may be a few individuals that you'd be tempted to leave out as you draw draw up your family tree. And family members whose lives may not uh, be what we wish they would be, and we might not want them public knowledge. I was thinking about this, and uh, that is really popular these days, isn't it? I mean, all the things, think about the commercials we see on television about uh, ancestry and uh, send some blood, and they'll tell you, you know, kind of what you're, how you're made up uh, biologically. I don't know how that works. And then uh, all the things that can direct us to, uh, to discover our genealogy. So it's, it's really become popular. Uh, and, and the reason, I guess, being, I'm really not sure, but people want to know where they came from, and they want to know things about their past, and they want to validate kind of what they are and who they are through their family. And Matthew begins his story of the birth of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 is where we're going to be with a genealogy which seems exceedingly dull uh, to start out a book, much less to launch the New Testament. We have a, a whole list, and we might wonder why God would devote so much time and so much space in the Bible to record a boring list of 
people who have difficult names and difficult to pronounce their names, and, uh, and we would be tempted just to leave those out. Maybe we would say, well, we don't, we don't need to, to see all those things, especially to kick off the, the New Testament, and, and it would be, be, it'd be better just to, to leave, those, leave those out. Uh, and, and today, why would we talk about something and why would it be relevant to us for a bunch of names of people who are halfway around the world? How could that be relevant for us? And the fact that we have the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew starting in verse 1 in chapter 1, it establishes an important truth. And listen to this truth that is established. It establishes that our faith is rooted in history, not in myth. You see, that's what the genealogy does. It, it, it puts roots to who Jesus Christ is. We don't simply have to say, well, Jesus is a myth. He just came on the scene, and we don't know anything about his background. If, if Matthew had skipped this, and Luke had skipped the genealogy of Jesus, and, and we would have just jumped into the birth of Jesus, what would the big question be? Where did he come from? There's no history about his background. So, so the genealogy here, as though sometimes we may skip through this or we may not want to read all this, it really, it really does carry an important part of the roots or the history of Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. As we noted in last week's message, there were more than 300 prophecies about the coming Messiah in the Old Testament. More than 300 times uh, there was a, a scripture reference to the Messiah, the one who was to come. And, and that's all in the Old Testament. And we talked about Isaiah chapter 9, which kind of the, the centerpiece of those prophecies, which says uh, part of that, nine, Isaiah 9, 7 says, the Messiah would reign over the house of Israel forever. So the coming king, the Messiah, would be a descendant of David's house. It would be a descendant through the line of David and Solomon, and, and uh, he would have a, a, an eternal reign. So as we look at this, the presentation of Jesus Christ in Matthew begins by showing the fact that Jesus fulfilled those prophecies that we find in the Old Testament, the promise that he was the promised Messiah. Now, that's what the Jews were looking for. And the Jews have denied that, even though through the Old Testament, all of these prophecies about Jesus Christ has been fulfilled. So this morning, I hope you not tune out and say, well, this is going to be awful boring. I hope it's not, because there's a couple of things about the genealogy of Jesus that I want us to discover this morning. Kind of like being your own grandpa. You might say, well, I, I would certainly not want everybody to know about my, my genealogy, but but there's some things that I want us to notice about the genealogy of Jesus, and you may already be ahead of me thinking about some of those things. But the first thing I want us to look at is, is some conflicts in the genealogies of Jesus. You know, people always look for conflicts in the Bible. They always say, well, this says this in one place, it said this in somewhere else, and uh, somewhere else in the Bible. You may have never heard this, but chances are if you talk to anyone who's a non-believer or skeptics, they may bring up the genealogy of Jesus in two accounts. Matthew chapter 1, 1 through 17, records the genealogy of Jesus. And then again in Luke chapter 3, verse 23 through 38. So there are, in fact, two genealogies of Jesus Christ given in the New Testament. One's in Matthew, one's in Luke. Now, what's kind of, uh, kind of easy for us to understand if we were really look at it, Matthew was written to the Jews. 
And it, it started uh, at Abraham, and it goes forward to the birth of Jesus. So uh, the Jews, they're a part of the promised covenant. Uh, Matthew starts with that. He starts with Abraham. He moves all the way through Abraham up to Jesus Christ. Luke is primarily written to the Gentiles, which is us. Anybody that's not a Jew, you're a Gentile. So, so Luke, he, he addresses a little different. Uh, he starts with Jesus. And, and goes back, not just to Abraham, but he goes all the way back to Adam. And so when we look at that, most people believe that Matthew is recording the line of Joseph, as, as Matthew writes, and Luke is recording the line of Mary. So you have two genealogies. They don't look exactly the same. They're, they're pretty much the same up to some point, but, but one is describing David's genealogy are from Jesus all the way back to Abraham, and then Luke is taking the line of Mary, and he's showing that line all the way back to Adam. There are 39 begats in Matthew that claim Jesus was the biological son of Joseph. No, that he was not the biological son of Joseph. And when Matthew writes, he chooses his words real careful. Listen to what he says. This is, this is in, in, in Matthew 1.16. It says, Joseph... The father, uh, let me get it right here. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Matthew, by saying these little words, of whom was born Jesus, whom is referring or is feminine in the Greek. So Matthew was real careful showing that Joseph was not the physical father of Jesus. Now, we don't have time to talk about all the implications of that this morning, but there are huge implications of that, that Jesus was born not with the father Joseph, but, but Joseph became his father, not his biological father. Like I say, we, don't, uh, we really don't have time to go into all that. But, but what this is showing is that, that legally Jesus Christ, that's, jo- that's Joseph's oldest son, uh, he was in line for the throne of David. That's what we see when we read this. So he, what Matthew has done, he's, he's established a legal claim that Jesus Christ uh, is in line for the throne of David. Now, why would that matter? You remember, if you go to the Old Testament, the firstborn son always had the, the legal claim of the inheritance. So remember, Matthew's talking to Jews. So he's trying to establish the fact that Jesus Christ, through the, through the line of David, he legally had claim to the kingdom. So that's what Matthew's doing. Luke wanted to show that Jesus was human, and he traced his bloodline back through Mary to David, and both Mary and Joseph uh, have the same lineage up to that point, but where they were uh, distantly related but not close enough to make any difference or to be a problem. So they were descendants both from the king of David. Secondly, I want to look this morning, this is really the meat of the message about the, out, uh, the outcast in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, you know some of these things. Since Matthew's a Jew, he's writing the genealogy of Jesus to a Jewish audience uh, to prove that Jesus was their king. Okay, so he's trying to convince them that Jesus is their king. And you would think that as he's showing the, the line of, of Jesus Christ, who's going to be a king... As he described that family line, you would think that, that they might uh, scratch out a few embarrassing relatives. Some of those skeletons in the closet that Matthew would say, well, 
you know, we can just skip over this because East Delta's going to read this one of these days, and if we drop a few names out, they're not going to know. They're not going to go back and look at all those things. But they didn't. The Bible doesn't keep the door shut on any skeletons that are in the closet. As we look at this, this family tree, this list includes adulterers. It includes murderers who's, who murdered their, their lover's husband. I mean, that's in the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, it, it talks about a man who committed incest with his daughter-in-law. Uh, it, it talks about a, a prostitute and, and how that was part of the line of Jesus, uh, uh, a notoriously wicked king who burnt two of his sons to a pagan god. I mean, as we look at the genealogy of Jesus, it's, it's kind of an unlikely mix of people to produce the Savior of the world. So why would it be in the Bible? Why would Matthew have it other than just historical fact? I want us to learn some things about this. Matthew chapter 1, we'll start in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And we're going to get into the begots here. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Abimadab, and Abimadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon, and Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. And David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Now, we'll talk about all of these in just a minute. And Solomon begot Rehoboam. Now, we're going to drop all the way down to verse 16. We're not going to read all of those things. There are 47 names in this genealogy. And uh, rather than burn all our time up just reading all these names, let's drop to verse 16. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Ordinarily, women were not listed in genealogies in the Old Testament. They were just, they were not listed there at all. But here... Women are listed in the New Testament, and, and he doesn't exclude any women, and, and he doesn't include all of them, but, but Matthew does not include, he, he doesn't include Eve, he doesn't include Sarah, that's Abraham's wife, he doesn't include Rebecca. Instead, he, reco- he records, I think this is kind of strange, he records these names of these women who are Gentiles, or at least they were married to Gentiles, and three of them were noted for their immorality. Now, I want you to just think about that. This Matthew is writing to who? Jews. If you're listening, say, I am. So he's writing to Jews. What did Jews think of Gentiles? They hated them. They literally hated them and wanted them killed. But as, G- as Matthew's writing to Jews, the women that he listed who would normally have been passed over anyway... He includes them, and he includes them. They're all Gentiles are married to Gentiles, and, and they're immoral women. So, so it seems apparent from the very beginning of his gospel, Matthew is spotlighting the grace of God. He wanted the Jews to understand about the grace of God. In fact, four women in Matthew's genealogy illustrate different vantage points about the good news. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. I want us to look at these four ladies that are mentioned in Matthew. And the reason we're going to look at this is because it's so out of the ordinary. As I said, I've kind of trying to build that case of the Old Testament doesn't even include them. 
And in Matthew skips a bunch of Jewish women that were married to some of these men that we see, but he includes these four Gentiles. So the first woman I want to look at this morning is, is named Tamar. Now, her story is in Genesis chapter 38. Don't worry, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time just going into every little detail of these ladies, but, but this is a sordid tale of deception, this Tamar. It's, it's a tale of prostitution. It's a tale of incest. That's what we see when we go to Genesis chapter 38. She is the daughter-in-law of Judah, one of Jacob's sons, and, and Judah has chosen Tamar as his wife for his firstborn son, Ur. Well, so we have here, uh, Ur was evil. He, he, he did what was evil in, in God's sight, and God struck him dead in Genesis 38, verse 7. God just struck him dead. He was gone. We don't know exactly what he done. We just know from the Scripture that, that he was struck dead. So Ur's brother, Onan, he became Tamar's husband. That was part of the law. So he took Tamar as his wife, but he decided that he was not going to give her a child. He just said, I'm not going to give you a child. So, so that inheritance would die there. So in Genesis 38:10, boom, God took his life. He's gone. He's out of the picture. So, so she's frustrated. Tamar is. She's lost two husbands. She wants a son. So, so she was not willing to wait any longer on God. So what she did is, is instead of waiting on the right husband or waiting on God's right timing, Tamar con- con- conceived this plan in her mind. It was an evil plan to become pregnant. She seems to have, uh, this happens to all too well and, and, and understand her father-in-law all too well. She became dressed up as a prostitute. She stood by the road where she knew her father-in-law was going to come along. He hired her without realizing who she was. And so he hired her. They were there together. And she, she became pregnant with his child. He didn't realize it, that it, it was his son's own widow, but so she became pregnant with his child. When Judah found out she was expecting, he said, I'm going to have her killed. Now realize he didn't know that he had been the one with her. So he said, I'm going to have her killed. Well, the truth came out and, and they said, Judah, you're the father of this child. So uh, because deception, as the children was born, and there was twins born, and they were named Perez and Zera, and Perez was the firstborn that would carry out the Masonic line. Now think about that story. If you were ever going to drop one little person out of the genealogies, why didn't you drop her out? I mean, think about what happened with Judah and then also with her. What a sword tale. And if you, uh, we like to go to the movie and we like to see the tale and we like to, to see a good ending and turn around. It never turned around. It sounds more like a soap opera on modern television. This woman losing two husbands, tricking her father-in-law uh, into having a child with her and acting like a prostitute. And that, people like Judah, uh, Judah and Tamar, they're included in their, this line of Jesus. What a, what a picture of the grace of God. You know, if you ever hear somebody say, well, you know, think about the things I've done. <laughs> you just laugh at them and say, you wouldn't believe this. Let me tell you what Jesus' line looked like. Let me tell you about some of the things that took place. But Tamar's history doesn't illustrate that, that Jesus is a Savior 
uh, of sinners. It, 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 he deliberately associated with tax collectors. Y'all remember in Scripture where the, where, the, uh, where the Pharisees got on to Jesus for associating with, with tax collectors and, and, uh, and, and sinners and prostitutes and others. That's over in Matthew eleven nineteen. 19. But listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 9, 12. He says, is it not those who are healthy who need a physician, a physician but those who are sick? That was Jesus' reply to the Pharisees. Why would I go to someone who, who is healthy? I, uh, and the next verse he adds is, I did not come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners. Now, he doesn't mean by that that there's, there's those that are righteous enough to get to heaven, but, but rather he, he wanted the Pharisees to see that he came to seek and save that which was lost, those who, who needed a Savior. So, so there we go. That's the first person. Let's look at the next person, Rahab. Now, we talked about Rahab here a few months ago, but when we look at Rahab, she was saved through faith. Her character, y'all remember who Rahab was? Uh, we can't think of Thomas without thinking about doubting Thomas. Well, you can't really think about Rahab without thinking about the harlot, Rahab. I mean, when you read this story, when you, go to, uh, when you go over to Matthew, when you go over to Hebrews, when you go back to the story, over and over and over and over, it, it calls her the harlot. It, it, just, it just reminded over and over and over. Like Tamar, she was a Canaanite woman. She, she was excluded from God's covenant people. She was an outsider. She lived in Jericho. And we find her story in the second chapter of Joshua. Just to quickly go over that, remember the, uh, they were fixing to move into the promised land. They sent spies into the land, and, and they came into Jerusalem. And, and uh, I mean, they came into Jericho, and, and uh, Rahab hid them out in her house. And, and as, if you don't remember this story, you can go over to Joshua chapter 2, and you can read all about it. And, and so she, she hid them out in, in her house when the officials came and was going to kill these men, and she, she made a promise with them. That was the character of who she was. She was a prostitute. She was a harlot. She took these men. She helped them to escape on the promise that they would spare her family. Now, that's, that's Joshua 2, 18, 2, 8 through 13. We don't have time to go read that. So that was her character. Listen to what her belief was. In Joshua 2.11, she says this, talking about uh, the, 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 the God of the Hebrews. She said, He is a God in heaven and above and on all the earth beneath. She, she understood who God was. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 11.31. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient. After she had welcomed the spies... Uh, in peace. So, so we see the character of who she was. We see the beliefs that she had that, that God was who he stated to be. We see the demonstration of her faith. James 2.25 says, In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out through another way. There's no contradiction between the statement about faith in the book of Hebrews and what James, here, James says here. James is making a point that, that genuine saving faith is followed by obedience. You know, I want us just to stop here and just think about something. I, I mention this a lot. You know, simply believing is not enough. The Bible says even demons believe in Jesus Christ. And when they think of Jesus Christ, it causes them just to shudder to think about who he is. But believing's not enough. 
the results of, of a saving faith is when we put our trust in Jesus and we say, you know, I want you to come in. I want you to be my Savior. I want you to forgive my sins. And a saving faith results are a life of obedience. In other words, there's going to be obedience to follow. We can't just simply make a, a word that says, well, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ and never accept him and never have any obedience in our life. That's, that's why we talk about that word repenting. That's, that's when we're, we're living a life of sin and we come to Jesus Christ and we repent and we start going another direction. Are there still sins in our life? Sure there are. But there's a, there's a Holy Spirit of God that's convicting us of those sins. And, and as we grow in Christ, we, we, start, we start repenting over and over of those sins. And we, we begin to go another direction. 1 John 2, 3 says, By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments, if, we, if we're obedient to His commandments. Well, that's what we see in Rahab. Here's the third woman, Ruth. You know the thing about Ruth? I think, it's, I think it's good to understand that Ruth proves that good moral people, listen, good moral people still need a Savior. I mean, they still need a Savior. Here we talked about, we talked about Tamar and all her stories and all the things that she done. We, we talked about uh, Rahab and, and her, her background, her history, and all, all she did. But, but I want us to think about Ruth. Like Tamar, like Rahab, Ruth is a Gentile. She's a Moabite, according to Genesis chapter 19. She's outside of that covenant relationship with God. The Moabites were a race that, that actually resulted in an incestuous relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. That's, that, that was her background. That was her history. But she was a, a godly woman, unlike uh, Tamar or Rahab or Bathsheba. Ruth was a good moral woman. And, and she was married to a Jewish man, and he passed away, and her mother-in-law returned to the land of Israel, and out of love, Ruth chose to go with her. And, and that's where she says this, probably one of the most popular statements. She says, your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And the book of Ruth tells how, uh, how Ruth found grace and love in the eyes of her kinsman, Redeemer, and we won't talk about what that means, but his name was Boaz. He paid the price of redemption and took Ruth, a Moabite woman, as his bride. And, and what it is, it's a beautiful picture of, of what Christ did as our Redeemer. He, he paid the redemption price with his own blood. And as a result, the Gentiles were brought to him and to his family, uh, and, and we became his chosen bride. Now, I know I'm moving through some of this quickly. That's Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, but I'm, the clock is moving quickly also. Ruth married Boaz. They had a son named Obed who had a son named Jesse, who had a son named David, making Ruth King David's grandmother. That's who Ruth was. So this line of Jesus, a, a good moral person, I believe that's why Matthew included that. She also needed a Savior. Let's go to the next woman, and, and we got a couple of minutes left. Bathsheba. We all know the story of Bathsheba, don't we? Let's just touch on it real quickly. Uh, uh, people with a long spiritual he uh, heritage, they still need a Savior. That, that was Bathsheba. Matthew doesn't refer to her even by name. Did y'all catch that? He simply says, Uriah's wife or her of Uriah. He, he, didn't, he didn't actually use her name, but we, of course, know her name was Bathsheba. So in the lineage of Jesus, we have 
uh, Bathsheba here. The problem was King David. He sends all his men out to war. He's walking around on the roof of his castle. He looks down on the top of a, another place, and there's a lady there taking a bath, and he sends for her. And she comes to him, and, and they have an affair together, and she ends up expecting a child. So you know the story, what, what David did. He, he sent his uh, first thing he tried to do was hide it. He brought Uriah home from the battle, hoping that, uh, that they would uh, be together, and, and he could say, well, it's your son. But Uriah said, I'm not going to lay with my wife while all of my soldiers are out fighting. So that threw David's plan off. So David had him sent to the very... Uh, front of the battle lines where he knew he'd be killed. So Bathsheba becomes uh, David's wife. He takes it in their sin there, and they have a child, but because of that, that sin that was in their life, that child dies, and she has another child. This is Bathsheba and David. Think about this. Through an adulterous affair, they have another child who was named Solomon. We're getting into those names we see. Solomon, who, who became another link in the genealogy of Jesus. Can you understand how, when we read this, how shocking it is to see these women in the, the genealogy of Jesus? Now, I've thought all these things together, and we've, we've moved this real fast, but, you know, this is like dirty laundry. That's, that's Jesus' family tree. The, the women that include Gentiles, therefore they're considered unclean. They, they're considered to be out of the pedigree of Jewish people, sinners involved in deceit and prostitution, even in murder. That's what we see in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now here's the last thing. The accumulation of, of the genealogy of Jesus. Listen to this. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ, at the end of the list, there's one name. And the Bible says it's the name that's above every name. It's the name of Jesus Christ. When we think about Christmas and we go back and we, we put roots, historical roots, in the name of Jesus Christ, we realize that there's a long process of individuals who, who over 2,000 years of hip, history, it all came together in Bethlehem. It, it all became one thing with the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. You know, when we think about this, people today, I think they're looking for all kinds of truths, all kinds of proofs. As I said, to start with, I think that's why uh, these genealogy uh, commercials and all those things have been so successful. They really want to know where they came from, and they really want to know all the things about their history. The Bible laid that out for us that we can understand that Jesus Christ, he fulfilled all of these prophecies. He is the Messiah. You, you may be on a, on a spiritual journey. Perhaps you've been asking God, you know, God, I, I need some truth. I, I, need some, I, I need something that I can, I can absolutely believe that, that you are who you say you are. I need some real truth. When we begin to look at this, the genealogy of Jesus, the, the hundreds of prophecies, the, the names, the people, that were spoken about years before his birth, Christmas becomes the evidence that we're looking for. If somebody says, I just need some truth, that's what Christmas is. We can go back and, and through the genealogy of Jesus, we can see that Christ is the one that fools what we're looking for. Let's bow our heads together this morning. Lord, I know that uh, a man can stand and can babble through a bunch of words, and, and Father, I know also that you can take those words 
and that you can take them and you can bring them together and we can understand the truth of who you are. Lord, I pray today as we look at the genealogy of Jesus, as we just look at four people in that long line of people, we recognize immediately we, we can see your grace and we can see your forgiveness, Father. I pray that there would be none here today that think, you know, I've gone too far. Because, Father, we can see that you choose ordinary people, sins and all, and you choose to use us in the building of your kingdom. Father, I pray through understanding some of the, some of the people in, in your line Father, that, w- that we can know that, that you take us and you use us, you forgive us, you cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and you have a plan for each of us. Even in our sins, even in our failures, you can use those things to be glorified. Father, I pray also that we would know you call us just as we are, to come to you just as we are, but Father, you love us way too much to leave us just as we are. Your Spirit convicts us, your Your Spirit directs us, and Father, you want us to become more like you. You want us to become your obedient followers. And and Father, I pray that as we think about the answers, as we look for some truths, Lord, we can take your word and realize for 2,000 years we have a historical document of people leading up to the birth of our King. And Father, through that historical document, we can see that you've fulfilled every prophecy, that you've dotted every I, that you've crossed every T, and we have a true Savior in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray today as we think about those things, as we think about maybe even our life, and we, we think about, you know, kind of where we came from, and we realize we have a history, Lord, that we can know and we can look, that your history's there. We can trust you. We can build our faith upon you, knowing that truly you are the Son of God, the King of kings, our Lord of lords, and our Savior. Father, this morning, I pray as we have a a time of invitation, Lord, I pray that we'd turn our eyes upon you. We'd look full in your wonderful grace and the struggles of the day, the sins of the past would grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and the light of your grace. Father, I pray that we'd know that you want us to come just as we are. You want us to to confess to you you want to forgive us you want us to you want to cleanse us and you want us to be used in your glory in your kingdom father i pray now as we come of time of invitation i pray your spirit would guide us and lead us and direct us and i pray this in jesus name